Well, if you have your Bibles, you can leave them open to Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. As I told the morning service, the, the last time I preached, I left with a sunburn on my head, but not this morning. I'm thankful for that. I think many of you know, but if you're new with us, I'm the youth pastor here at Christ the Redeemer Church. I've been honored and privileged to be the youth pastor for the past five years. And if anyone's ever served in youth ministry in any capacity, volunteer, as an intern, or full-time, they've also had the honor and privilege of coming alongside parents and families as they evangelize, disciple, and raise their teenagers. If you're, I'm specifically thinking of junior and senior high youth ministry. And one of the most common points of tension for teenagers and parents is the idea of independence. Teenagers want to gain it and have it, and parents are slow and often wise to give it. Most of us, actually all of us, have been teenagers at some point in our lives, even if it might be a while since you remember it. And many of us have or will raise teenagers. So we can sympathize with both parties in that situation. We can think of the teenager and parent relationship in the way that Carrie often describes it as from birth all the way going up to adulthood, the relationship looks like this in a trajectory and it slowly begins to separate as they get into their teenage years, creating independence, which is a healthy thing. But it's kind of like this, a back and forth, a give and take. Because slowly but surely from birth to adulthood, Parents and, ch- and children are, constant, are in a constant struggle of independence and dependence. And this isn't just special to parenting and the relationship with their teenagers. No, independence is the DNA and, and, and lifeline of our country, isn't it? Each summer we come to get together and celebrate 4th of July for our Independence Day. Though we may not have this summer, but we, we used to. And we strive for independence from our parents as teenagers or government, debt, and even relationships. And you see this in the marriage rates as they've gone down and and people are getting married at a much older age. Our culture is obsessed with the idea of being independent. But the question is, for us today, does that line up with Christianity? Does Christianity embrace this independent mentality where we don't need anybody or depend on anybody or no one to depend on us? Our text today is going to give us an emphatic no. Our text today will reveal to us that those who want to receive eternal life, salvation, and those who want to enter the kingdom of God for eternity must become fully dependent upon Christ like an infant is to their parents. Our main point today and what I want you to walk away with is this. The kingdom of God is a gift to be received like a child. Look at verses 13 through 16 with me of our passage. It says this, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. We can assume that Jesus and the disciples are still in the same house that they were in verses 1 through 12, which Carrie preached on last week about divorce. And while they were in that house, Jesus now has had two, has had encounters with two different kinds of people and temperaments. First, he was met by the Pharisees, who wanted to test him about divorce, trying to trap him. And then second now, he's been greeted by babies, brought to him by mothers, fathers, and even older siblings to receive his blessing, which only he can give. Now, you might have noticed it doesn't say babies here, no. But in, in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, the same story is told. And Luke shows us that these children were actually infants. And the way Jesus holds them later shows this gentleness that would be given to an infant. But why? Why, why were the parents bringing these, these infants to be touched by Jesus? Well, it was a pretty common practice back then for parents and families to bring uh, a baby to be blessed by a, a rabbi or a famous teacher. And it, it's not to be confused with salvation at all. It was just for them to live good godly lives. And, this, and this, these families were probably, had probably heard Jesus' teachings. They've probably been following him for a while. And now they have an opportunity to bring their infants, their children, to Jesus. This is what Christian families still do today, isn't it? When we dedicate babies, after someone has a child, they, after a couple months, they bring them and we, we do a dedication. We want to see them grow up in the faith and ultimately come to salvation. This is what's happening during ministries such as TOTS, Children's Church, King's Club, Junior and Senior High Ministries. We are constantly coming alongside the parents and the families, trying to bring the children to hear Jesus' teachings and come to salvation. And this is an easy work. I want us to imagine what this scene probably looked like bringing these children. Because I think first we view it like this. I think we imagine a single file line with infants who are sleeping in their mother's arms peacefully. They're smiling a little bit. And while, they're, while the mothers are walking up to Jesus, Jesus goes and touches their head. Just the baby's head. The baby doesn't make a move, not a noise, but opens his eyes, just briefly smiles at Jesus. And Jesus, and the, the mom goes, thank you, Jesus. And Jesus goes, peace to you. And they move on, and the next mother comes up. If that's what you think is happening in this scene, let me just say, you've probably never been to Tots, You've probably never been to King's Club, Children's Church, or Nursery. You want to know why it's so hard to find volunteers for these ministries? Because when kids are in one spot for too long, they go crazy. See, this, this scene is probably more like a family standing in line at the grocery store. You can think of a family of, you know, six kids, maybe four kids. The babies are screaming the toddler is starting to run and is finding the water they use to clean, to clean people's feet when they enter the house and is drinking it. The teenager is starting to complain because their feet hurt and they're ready to go. And the dad is wanting to get to the arena in time to catch the gladiators. This is real life. 
And you know who loves it? Jesus does. But you know who's getting impatient? The disciples are. And what do the disciples do? They rebuke the families for bringing the children, and they tell them to leave. Why do they do this? I think there's two reasons. One is cultural, and the other is spiritual. During that time, those biblical times, children were of not much status, cultural status or importance. They were actually more of an inconvenience to the work of a teacher or rabbi and easily dismissed. And if things are going crazy like we think, it, it might seem like it's time for the kids to go. Jesus was probably tired. He had just been engaging with the, the, the Pharisees on a very hard subject as divorce as we saw last week. And the, the, the disciples' intention here probably isn't bad. It's probably good, trying to serve and Jesus and giving him some rest. But they missed the point, which is the second problem. It's just spiritual. The disciples don't realize they are in as much need of Jesus' blessing as the children are. The disciples don't realize they themselves are the children. And this is what ignites Jesus' indignation. The word indignant here means to kind of arouse to anger or to much grief. And so he was brought to much grief and, and is frustrated over how the disciples were rebuking the children and their parents. And he sees an opportunity to teach them in a very kind of intense way. I'm going to read it in the way I think Jesus actually said it to them in verses 14 through 16. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Jesus reveals to the disciples that these little children are able to receive the kingdom of God, not because of their traits, being cute or vulnerable, nor because of their innocence. Anyone who has a two-year-old knows they're not super innocent anymore. But rather, it's because of their posture in which they are brought to Jesus. They come to Jesus in complete and utter dependence upon him to receive his gift of blessing. They bring nothing to offer him. They bring no benefit or merit to Jesus. It is this kind of posture that Jesus says will enter the kingdom of God. How does a child receive the kingdom of God? Well, like an infant who receives their parents' provision, it's like a gift of life to them. For anyone to enter the kingdom of God, they must receive it as a child. But before we move on to the rest of our text, I want to say real quick what this text is not saying. It is not saying that infancy is the state of maturity that a Christian should strive for. It does not say here, be a child. It says, like a child. So our spiritual maturity should continue as Christians, but it should continue with recognition of how much we are truly in need of Christ. Unlike the world where maturity equals independence, the Christian's maturity should cause us to become even more dependent upon Christ. 
The more we learn about ourselves, the more we realize we are desperately in need of Christ's saving work on the cross. And this is what the rich young ruler does not show us in 17 through 22. The rich young ruler reveals how one can approach Jesus properly and still not be in a position to receive the kingdom of God. Look at verse 17 with me. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler approaches Jesus in what seems like a proper posture. He's, unlike the Pharisees before him, he presents himself humbly before Jesus, kneeling down the ground, and he asks the question that nobody has asked Jesus yet. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, to many of us who may have been Christians for a while and have had opportunities to evangelize, we, we might see this as like a no-brainer. We're thinking, tell him the gospel, Jesus. To us, this seems like a layup. This is a softball pitch. Christians, after a cup of coffee with a, with a non-believing friend, a friend would beg for a question like this. Preachers dream of moments like this. And what makes it even more interesting is this guy has status. He has wealth. He could be a great benefit to Jesus' team. The disciples are probably thinking the same thing. I mean, unlike the children, the disciples let this man just run right up to Jesus. And have you noticed in Mark who the disciples let run up to Jesus? I mean, we're talking men with demons. But they stop and rebuke children. It's probably because the disciples most likely know who this guy is. In Luke, he's known as a ruler, and maybe he's a ruler of, of, the, of a synagogue. And therefore, this guy is, is, is probably well-educated. It's obvious shown that he's wealthy, and he's asking the right questions. This is a guy who seems obviously qualified to join the disciples in Jesus' lowly crew of fishermen and tax collectors. So what does Jesus do? Does he take the low-hanging fruit? Does he present the gospel, get the guy saved, and have a notch in the old evangelizing belt? Well, let's see together in verses 18 through 20. It says this, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus does not take the softball pitch question and knock it out of the park to us. Rather, he goes directly at the heart of the young man. What Jesus does is he reveals the man's heart. He begins by asking a clarifying question, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And what Jesus is doing here is he's holding up a cultural norm among the Jews in that time that goodness was only to be seen and found in God alone. And only certain rabbis or famous teachers would maybe be called good, but that would simply mean their teaching was good, not they themselves. Jesus is trying to direct the man to the reality that Jesus is good because he is God. But the man doesn't know it. He doesn't realize that Jesus' teachings and miracles that obviously stirred him up to approach Jesus actually reveal that he is God's son. No, the man is simply 
going through the motions to try to impress and please Jesus to receive eternal life. But then, why does Jesus go on to bring up the Ten Commandments? Well, simply because the young man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In the Gospel of Matthew, he says, what good deeds must I do to inherit eternal life? This man is missing who Jesus is. He is missing the point of Jesus' teachings. And he is in direct contrast to the children that Jesus used as an example of who would inherit eternal life. He has made it about what he can do. But how does the man respond to the Ten Commandments? To the commandments? Well, he says this. All these I have kept from my youth. Now, for some of you, your Sermon on the Mount radar is starting to go off, and you're realizing that external obedience to the law actually isn't enough, and that Jesus reveals in the Gospel of Matthew that it's actually a heart condition, that our hearts are the problem. But for a Jew, he could be considered righteous before the law by keeping these commandments. And, And Paul kind of works through that in his letters later on. And so his response isn't necessarily ignorant. It's just not enough to merit him eternal life. Because look at Jesus' response to him in verses 21 through 22. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looks upon the man's heart, and he loves him. He sees what the man is missing, what he is not fully understanding. He isn't approaching Jesus as a Pharisee trying to test him. No, he's more genuine than that. But he's also not approaching Jesus as an infant either, in complete need and dependency upon Christ for life, eternal life. Rather, he is approaching Jesus the same way he has always approached everything else in his life. Dependency on nobody and the ability to accomplish anything. This man his whole life has kept the law. He has always been a good Jew. And at the same, and at the same time has grown, a great, grown and earned a great wealth that he hasn't been dependent upon anyone to gain. If anything, he sees his wealth and riches as a blessing from God. He believes that both his moral abilities and his wealth are signs that he can earn and inherit eternal life. The problem is Jesus is changing the narrative. Jesus is revealing that neither moral adherence to the law or status can gain entry into the kingdom of God. It is full and utter dependence upon him. That's why when the man walks away sad and it revealed that he hasn't kept all those commandments since he was young. No, he missed the first one. Have no other gods before me. Money and wealth was his God. He was fully dependent upon his wealth and his ability to earn it to give him life, and he thought even eternal life. Therefore, the cost of losing it and following Jesus was too much for him, and he walked away. It is clear that he was not approaching Jesus as a child in deep need of him, but rather as someone who has something to offer Jesus for eternal life. 
This is why no one can enter the kingdom of God who does not receive it as a gift like a child. Is this not your typical American today? (laughs) The idea that I need nobody, I'm not dependent on anything, and the things I own are the most important things in the world to me because they're mine. Living in a consumer-driven culture, we can, we can relate to the rich young ruler. But this text means more than just money and wealth. Having wealth and riches is, is not the problem here. This text addresses anything we think we bring to Christ outside of a complete need of Him that will bring us salvation. It's the person who thinks that that good people are going to heaven simply because they are good. This text reveals that no one is good outside of God. This speaks to the person who thinks because they were born into a Christian home, maybe dedicated to the church as a baby, and has lived a virtuous life, that they are going to enter God's kingdom because of that, into heaven for eternity. This man believed that he kept the commandments since he was a boy. There is nothing we can bring to Christ that will earn our salvation. There is nothing we can do to inherit eternal life without having a full dependency upon Christ. On the other side, too, there are miniature gods in our own lives that we will be asked to sacrifice when it comes to following Christ. This man was asked to give up his finances, his obsession and worship of financial prosperity. We may be asked to give up wealth, but we may also be asked to give up relationships, careers, reputations. You see, we all have something. Like the rich young ruler that has taken the place of God in our lives. That we will be asked to sacrifice, to put in its proper place before God. This is the cost of discipleship. I remember meeting a guy back in Ohio, very spontaneous meeting with this guy. And we started talking about Christianity. And it was on a Sunday, and he told me that he went to church that morning and that he was ready to follow Christ on Monday. First, he was going to get drunk and party with his friends because everything was going to change on Monday. Jesus isn't some fad, some diet or hobby you decide to make room for by cutting something else out of your schedule. Jesus asks for the whole schedule. He asks for your whole life to depend upon him as if you can't live without Christ. Like an infant's dependency upon their parents is the human's dependency upon Christ for salvation. This is what the rich young ruler was not willing to do. He was not willing to give up his idol, his God, his wealth to follow Christ and receive eternal life. And it was a profound scene to witness. And Jesus could see that the disciples were taken back by this interaction with the rich young ruler. So he addresses them to teach them who can enter the kingdom of God. Look at verses 23 through 25 with me. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching the disciples that unlike the infants, those who believe they have no need for anyone to provide for them will have a much harder time seeing their need for salvation. They will have a harder time recognizing their desperate dependence upon Jesus Christ for salvation. Because their whole lives they've earned and built everything they have, not depending on anybody. And Jesus wants to make it crystal clear that it is impossible for someone of great wealth to enter the kingdom of God, that he compares it to the largest animal in the region, a camel, to entering the smallest hole, the eye of a sewing needle. The camel will never make it through an eye of a needle on its own, outside of some miraculous intervention. And a rich person, or any person for that matter, will never make it into the kingdom of God based on their own doing outside of some miraculous intervention which leads to the disciples response and is the question that the rich young ruler should have asked look at verses 26 through 27 and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him then who can be saved Jesus looked at them and said with man it is impossible but not with God for all things are possible with God. The disciples are starting to see clearer who Jesus is and who can enter the kingdom of God. Their whole lives, they were under the impression that the the most religious, the religious elite would be the ones who enter into the kingdom. And they also thought that the wealthy were the ones that were blessed by God. So they obviously will be entering the kingdom of God, won't they? They were believing some kind of works-based prosperity gospel, and it was destructive. And Jesus' teaching is leading them to the desperation question of, then who can be saved? If it isn't the religious elite, if it isn't the powerful and mighty, then who will it be, Jesus? Who will be saved? Who can be saved? Jesus doesn't give an answer to who, but to how. He says, with man it is, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus shows them how one is saved. And it is only through God. It is only by God's power and grace and mercy that one can receive the gift of the kingdom of God. This is why we had Ephesians read. It's not based upon, it's, it's not just about riches and wealth. and it's, it's not based upon your moral efforts. We're all dead in our transgressions. We're all in need of the gift of grace and mercy to enter the kingdom of God. And if we weren't, we would have something to hold over Christ. We would have something to boast about. This is what it means to receive the kingdom of God like an infant. They received his blessing because they came to him, depending upon receiving it from him, not bringing anything but themselves They had nothing to offer Jesus in obedience or wealth. They had no status to claim before him. They came to him for him. And it is in that posture that one receives the kingdom of God. 
not holding on to anything but being held by the one who gives eternal life, Jesus Christ. And it dawns on Peter. As he's hearing this, it dawns on him. Peter, the official spokesperson for the disciples, apparently, speaks up and says how much they've given up and how much they have sacrificed for Jesus. And Jesus cuts him off and says this. Look at verses 29 through 31 with me. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The disciples recognized that they have followed Jesus. And unlike the rich young ruler, they have depended upon Jesus Christ during his ministry, even if they didn't realize it. They are recognizing that they are like the children. That as they left their fathers and mothers, jobs and families to follow Jesus, they were dependent upon him. And Jesus makes it very clear that it wasn't in vain. Those who count the cost of following Jesus and give up what this world has to offer will receive it a hundredfold now and in eternity. This is what the young, rich young ruler missed. His wealth is pale in comparison to what Christ has to offer, which is himself and his body of believers. Those who lose family members due to their confession of Christ are a part of a family of God with millions of fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. Those who have lost their work because of their faith have homes and lands with other brothers and sisters they can never dream of. But notice the one negative. Persecution. Persecution will come. It's, the part, of, it's a part of discipleship. But the comfort of God's family and eternal life outweighs the persecution because Jesus gives himself. Jesus ends this teaching opportunity with his disciples by reminding them that the first in this world will be last and the last in this world will be first in the kingdom of God. This is why the children and the rich young ruler are a great contrast of who will enter the kingdom of God. Those who will enter the kingdom of God will not enter it based upon their merits nor based upon their status in this world, but based upon Christ's merit and based upon Christ's status with God the Father. Jesus is the only person in human history who perfectly obeyed God's law and is worthy of eternal life in God's kingdom. And instead of staying in his kingdom, he leaves it. He leaves the riches of God's kingdom and comes into earth as what? as an infant, as a child, to grow up, to become a servant, a servant who goes to the cross as a punishment that is, is, is a form of execution for the lowest of lows in society. He took on the penalty of death that mankind was deserving for their rebellion against God. And it is he who by his resurrection makes entry into God's kingdom possible. What the rich young ruler didn't realize is that God didn't ask him to do anything. Jesus didn't ask him to do anything he hadn't already done. He gave up his riches so that the poor in spirit can know riches in heaven with their creator. So to ask the disciples question again, 
Who then can be saved? It is those who come to Jesus like an infant, brought to him by the gracious and loving mercy of his word and his spirit, and clings to him like an infant dependent upon him for life, who recognize their need of his salvation and bring nothing to earn it, nothing to impress God to allow them entry into his kingdom. And they receive his blessing of eternal life found in his outstretched arms on the cross, which he graciously wraps around us and calls us his, giving us the blessing of eternal life. Who can enter the kingdom of God? Those who receive the kingdom of God as a gift, like an infant, like a child. Let's pray. Father, remind us of our deep and desperate need for you. We pray for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.